Welcome back, my fellow creatives. Uh, I'm happy to be back after venturing amongst mosquitoes and bears and what have you in the Northwoods. So excited to return here with a mystery installment to a series that features a character we all know quite well. I just have not seen what this character looks like from this particular author. So I'm excited. This is a Sherlock Holmes mystery, and it is set in World War II. Robert J. Harris has been writing Sherlock Holmes into World War II for a bit, and I'm, I'm intrigued because I used to collect a lot of like other writers doing Sherlock Holmes, like when Sherlock Holmes goes to America and Sherlock Holmes goes to France and such. And so I thought, well, why not? I, 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 when someone cares about the character and they can do it right, it'll be a good mystery. And it's not the first time Sherlock Holmes has been set in World War II anyway, because um, some of the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes movies had him go up against the Nazis. So I'm intrigued to see how this uh, particular writer uh, handles the character in this time period. All right, so scoping out our, well, we're not going to do the preface. We're jumping right into part one, Inferno. So we, we have no prologue, which is fine. Chapter one, The Vanishing Vampire. It was with some relief that I welcomed Inspector Lestrade and his two companions into our Baker Street, Baker Street rooms that afternoon. Since settling the matter of the killer who called himself Crimson Jack, there had been little to satisfy Sherlock Holmes's restless intellect. Our pursuit of that murderer had occupied us from September to October of 1942, but now it was May of the following year, and, while war raged across the globe, our lives had settled into a wearisome routine. The cases that had come our way, such as the Phantom of the Underground and the Mystery of Gulliver Lodge, Holmes had disposed of with a rapidity that both amazed and disappointed me. As correct as his ingenious solutions proved to be, they did little to exercise his highly developed faculties of observation and deduction. This left him with sufficient leisure to master a number of challenging violin pieces, as well as attending several of the free lunchtime concerts at the National Gallery, organized by Miss Myra Hess, herself an accomplished musician. The end result, though, was that he had settled into a sort of restive ennui from which it was difficult to shake him. Inspector Lestrade's phone call, however, promised some serious matter to engage my friend's attention. I gathered from his brief preview that the crime was a violent robbery that involved a painting, the subject matter of which had been altered in some inexplicable fashion. I found myself intrigued, but when I relayed these snippets to Holmes, he barely raised his eyes from the leather-bound copy of Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People that lay open on his lap. In his lap. And I'm going to pause here anyway, because I'm hoping it's B-E-D-E, -E, so beads, beadas. I'm not cultured. Anyway, but just in the first page, I do want to comment, having read a lot of Holmes by Doyle, well, all of Holmes by Doyle, multiple times since I was in single digits, I feel like Harris has the Doyle slash Watson narrative narration narrative style 
down pretty well, uh, which is refreshing to see because recently I read a short story collection featuring Miss Marple by various contemporary authors. And while some of them were quite good, it was clear that not all of them were going for the narrative style of Christie. And that took me out of those stories, to be frank. So it, I, I was a little worried. Well, I'm always a little worried, but, <laughs> but I was curious to see if Harris would, Harris would be able to capture that narrative voice that Watson has um, from Doyle. And I feel like he's got it. So that's pretty cool to see. All right, back to it. I say, Holmes, do show some interest, I remonstrated. Violence, robbery, and the mysterious transmutation of a painting. Surely these are the elements of a classic affair. He slowly turned the page and addressed me without looking up. Watson, I detect in your tone a certain eagerness for anything that will provide you with material for another of those colorful tales you will not desist from writing. Well, then at least would be better, that at least would be better employment than watching you wallow in this unproductive lethargy, I countered sharply. Holmes raised, Holmes raised a sardonic eyebrow. Really, Watson, I cannot help but note that a certain tetchiness has crept into your character since your friend Miss Preston returned to the United States. Ooh. I found myself quite taken aback by his unexpected reprimand, as though he had spotted in me a symptom of some serious malady that I myself had failed to detect. Tetchiness? Do you think so? He waved a finger in the air as though to summon up the scene. Why, just the other day you remonstrated with Mrs. Hudson quite strongly over the condition of your breakfast egg. Well, it was definitely runny, I began, then realize, realizing how petulant this sounded. I stopped myself from going any further and admitted with a sigh. Well, I suppose you're right, Holmes. I apologize if I've been in any way difficult. Not at all, old fellow. For years you have tolerated my idiosyncrasies with admirable good humor, and I do not blame you at all for feeling the absence of that lady as keenly as you do. During our pursuit of Crimson Jack, I had formed a close friendship with Miss Gail Preston, an American radio journalist whose involvement had proved crucial to the case. It was a closeness I had never expected to find again after losing my dear Mary years before, and it was, it was a hard blow when she was summoned back to the United States by her employers, the NBC radio network. I suppose all of us must answer the call of duty in our own way, I said resignedly. Indeed! said Holmes, who had answered that call himself many times. No doubt the talks she is delivering to her fellow citizens of her first-hand experiences of the conflict in Europe will prove a great boon to the war bonds drive on which she is engaged. And until she returns, Holmes, I said, steering us back to the subject at hand, I confess that I shall be grateful for any measure of distraction our old friend Lestrade can provide. Holmes did not rise to my lure, however, and returned to his reading. So I'll pause again. Uh, the Crimson Jack allusions look like they are from the first book, A Study in Crimson, that Harris wrote. And so I 
appreciate Harris trying to make sure there are connections to the previous episode, which is fair. I mean, that would happen on occasion in the home stories that Doyle wrote. But he doesn't dwell too long on it. There have been just a couple allusions to Crimson Jack, and it's one paragraph to this female character, and that's it. Then we move on. So I, I appreciate that. We don't have too much going on. And if it's Watson's character that he's thinking about a lady, I mean, after all, in the Doyle stories, he's married like two or three times. So it fits that Watson is pining for somebody. Um, so that that works out. So let's see here. Back to it. Fortunately, we had not much longer to wait before we heard the inspector's familiar heavy tread on the stairs. Holmes answered his knock with a summons to enter. Dressed in a tweed overcoat and his usual bowler hat, Lestrade with his broad shoulders almost entirely obscured the slight figure in the gray suit who followed him. Also in tow was a stout mustachioed fellow who owned the flushed cheeks of a country policeman. Lestrade introduced his companions as Mr. Winslow Bastable and Detective Sergeant Oliver Pole, both from the village of Cobblestone in Kent. Once they were seated, the policeman on the capacious... This is an oddly structured sentence. Once they were seated, comma, the policeman on the capacious leather settee, comma, Bastable in a rattan chair, comma, Holmes closed his book and set it aside. Sorry, I, I had to... That is such an oddly constructed sentence. Even if we're going for, like, period speak, that's odd. Okay, back back to it. Well, Estrade, from what Dr. Watson has repeated to me of your telephone call, this appears to be a very standard robbery. Standard it may be, said Bastable, in a thin, trembling voice. Oh, thin... But in the course of this robbery, my uncle Junius was violently assaulted and currently lies in a state of unconsciousness. I did not intend to minimize your personal tragedy, Holmes assured the young man. But serious as the matter is, such cases are not brought to me unless they exhibit one or two features of more than usual interest. More than usual, Pole expostulated. They are downright flabbergasting. In all my days, I never heard of such a thing. Holmes's lip twitched uncomfortably at the outburst. Lestrade leaned forward with a serious frown, as though apologizing for his colleague's excessive enthusiasm. I think it would be best, Oliver, if we let Mr. Bastable lay out the background to the case. It would! It would! Pole agreed expansively. Go ahead, Mr. Bastable. You tell the great detective all about it, and we'll see what he makes of your extraordinary tale. I had the impression that this simple rustic officer had never dealt with any but the most prosaic of crimes, and that he had imposed upon Lestrade's friendship with Sherlock Holmes to bring this incident to Baker Street, like a proud angler showing off a prize catch. Bastable nervously fingered the fair mustache that barely made its presence felt upon his upper lip, then began his account of the incident. Now, before we begin, because the next page is like entirely Bastable talking. Oh, never mind. It's like goes on for the rest of the chapter. I just want to pause for a second. 
that it looks like we're getting into what was a similar uh, style for Doyle. Because I know I have griped and whinged more than once on this podcast about having too much exposition or, you know, info dumping before we really get into what's going on. Now, I'm saying that because I don't want to come off as entirely hypocritical because I can tell the rest of the chapter is Bostable talking. And he's going to be laying out his background, like his life story, before he gets into the actual mystery. This is a common thing Doyle would do almost every story. Anytime a client came and was talking to Holmes, they would always introduce themselves and lay out their whole life story before they would get into the actual crime. That was very typical. So... I can see Harris knows that, understands that, and that's why he's having a character do the same thing. And I am okay with that. He's he's keeping to the style, the original style Doyle established. Okay. So now Bastable's going to start talking. I am one of a small family, Mr. Holmes, all of whom have lived for many years under the most humble of circumstances, and since the war have found life even more restricted. I was aware only in the vaguest way that I had an uncle, Randolph Bastable, who years ago had emigrated to America, where he made himself a fortune in the cotton trade. Part of his acquired wealth he used to purchase a substantial country house just outside the village of Cobblestone in Kent, taking up residence there sometime in the early 1930s. I had never met my uncle Randolph and was consequently very surprised to be contacted by his lawyer upon his death two weeks ago. It seems that having never married and produced offspring of his own, he desired to pass on some benefit of his success to other family members bearing the name Bastable. These consisted of myself, my wife Lily, my cousins James, Herbert, and Clarice, and my uncle Junius. We were invited to come and live together in his country house, which he had named the Poplars. There was adequate space for us each to have a private suite of rooms, and while we lived there, we would be entitled to a handsome stipend paid out of my uncle's many investments. None of us had ever imagined living in a place as grand as the Poplars, and for Lily and myself, it was as though we had been cast into some romantic dream. Among the conditions attached to the will was that we should all move into the house on the same date, and that was agreed upon as the 18th of this month. Just yesterday, I mused, surprised that tragedy should have struck so quickly. But for those of us who read Sherlock Holmes stories, we're not, because any sort of I never heard I had this relative before is a clear sign a scam is afoot. Okay. We all knew each other only from meeting at funerals and the odd wedding. But everyone seemed equally uh, pleased with the arrangement, and as it removed the necessity of paying rent and came with a handsome income. We each moved into our own suite and sat down last night to an excellent supper provided by outside caterers. The house had no servants? Holmes inquired. Another big <laughs> red flags everywhere. Okay. My uncle was cared for by an elderly couple named Weeks, who served as caretaker and cook. He made provision in his will for them to retire to a cottage in Cornwall, 
which had long been their desire, along with a modest pension as thanks for their faithful service. By the time we all arrived at the house, they were long gone. They left behind a letter written by my uncle in a sealed envelope, which was to be opened by the most senior of the new residents, this being, of course, my uncle Junius, a retired fishmonger. Seated at the head of the table, my uncle opened the letter and read it silently to himself. I saw his eyes grow wide, but when I inquired as to the contents, he merely replied, All in good time, and tucked it away in an inside pocket of his jacket. We were all so delighted at our new station in life that none of us was inclined to press him on the matter. For all we knew, it was merely a set of instructions for tending the boiler and contacting the local laundry. But in fact, it was a message of the most vital importance, Pole interjected. Really, Oliver, you must let Mr. Bostwell tell the story at his own pace, Lestrade, Lestrade remonstrated. As you can imagine, Bastable went on, with this change of circumstances, I was in such a state of excitement that I found it difficult to sleep. Leaving my wife to her slumbers, I put on my dressing gown and slippers and set off for the kitchen, intending to make myself a soothing cup of cocoa. What time was this? asked Holmes. According to the clock in our bedroom, it was shortly after midnight, Bastable replied. I made my way downstairs quietly in order not to disturb anyone else. Switching on the lights as I went, being unfamiliar with the house, I took a wrong turning in my search for the kitchen and found myself in the east wing, where a light had already been switched on in the passage ahead of me. This ended in a blank wall. However, there where it was on the right-hand side, a few yards ahead of me, another passage, which I could tell was also lit. Wondering who else might be abroad at this hour, I called out, Hello! Is anybody there? Turning into the side passage, which was some twenty feet in length, I saw at the far end a figure, lying on the floor below a wall safe, which gaped open. It had evidently been concealed by an embroidered hanging that was pushed off to one side and was held back by the open door. Rushing to assist the fallen figure, I saw at once that it was my Uncle Junius, and that there was a patch of blood on the back of his head. In his hand, he clutched what proved to be the mysterious letter from Uncle Randolph. I tried to rouse Uncle Junius, but without success, as I have had no medical training. Accordingly, I hastened back into the main part of the house and struck the dinner gong loudly and repeatedly to rouse the rest of the family. Once we were all gathered, James and Herbert carried my uncle up to his room and laid him on his bed, where my cousin Clarice bandaged his injury. I, in the meantime, telephoned for the police and a doctor. The painting, Pole egged on the witness. The painting! After only a brief hesitation, Bastable complied. I recall quite clearly, as I rushed down the passage towards the stricken form of my uncle, noticing on my left a deep alcove. From the corner of my eye, I glimpsed a painting hanging on the alcove wall that faced me as I passed. I failed to see anything extraordinary in that, said Holmes, barely suppressing a sigh. This was no ordinary painting, Mr. Holmes, Pole declared, as majestically as a magician about to produce a dove from his kerchief. You tell him, Mr. Bastable. Well, it was a very unusual painting, said Bastable, like no other in the house. He glanced anxiously at Holmes and myself, as though anticipating skepticism. Gentlemen, it was a portrait of a vampire. 
A vampire? I echoed incredulously. Count Dracula himself, I should say! Bastable expanded, as portrayed by Bella Lugosi in the famous film. I saw Holmes's eyes widen the merest fraction, a sure sign that his interest had been engaged. That is not even the best part, enthused Detective Sergeant Pole, barely resisting a tasteless chuckle. Tell him the rest, Mr. Bastable. Well, this morning, Bastable continued with mounting excitement, when the police arrived and we examined the scene of the, scene of the crime, to my utter amazement, that painting had vanished and been replaced by another. And that's the end of the chapter. A little longer than five pages, yeah. But uh, that explains, you know, chapter title. And <laughs> I feel like this is a pretty decent, true to the style Doyle established in Holmes, uh, in his home stories, which is kind of cool. And granted, I'm I'm curious, like I'd have to go back and see A Study in Crimson. That's That sounds like it's the first book of this series. I'd be curious to see if Holmes was meant to be, if Holmes is just a lot older, or if Holmes was just, Harris has changed his Holmes, changed Holmes's birth date, so he was just simply born later. I'd have to see. But I do like, you know, this book is called The Devil's Blaze. And if you know Holmes stories, that title is, sounds like an amalgam, as it were, of Devil's Foot and Silver Blaze. So I'm curious to see where this is going to go. Um, and let's face it, I'm a sucker for a good Holmes story. So I, I'm excited. And if you are a Holmes fan, I'm sure you would probably want to give this a try. Or you just like a good mystery. Because I already like on how this is established. We had a great um, foreshadowing in the first page that there was some sort of a venture afoot as it were and yes there is the stalling a bit with establishing a little um tie to the previous story the background of our client as it were before we really get into the meat of the you know where the story is going but that's again true to form with how doyle wrote so i'm i'm pretty cool with it i and harris clearly has a sense of the voice apart from that one sentence that just felt very bizarrely constructed i i think the writing is really solid here so yeah if you dig if you dig homes you dig mysteries do check this one out check the first one out why not so we'll see what i can find next week in the meantime until then read on share on and write on my friends cheers